Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Jordan de Jong, who's a property investor and data science expert. And we take a deep dive into some of the things that are featuring in the real estate market and will in the future from a technical point of view, such as big data and machine learning, which he gives us a great crash course on. We chat to him about how he got started in property, purchasing his first investment at 23 years old. And we go into his analysis that he goes through when purchasing a property and what an A-grade property means to him. And I'm sure you'll agree that his approach is pretty impressive from a fundamental and analysis point of view. He comes from a very inspiring entrepreneurial background as well, but no silver spoons in his mouth. He's a very down-to-earth chap and I had a great time chatting with him and I'm sure you'll enjoy the interview. Here's Jordan. Jordan de Jong, thank you for joining me on Geared for, for Growth. Thanks for having me. I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. It's good to it's good to finally get you and we've got some great stuff in store. I'm looking forward to diving into that. But kick us off by letting us know who you are and what you specialize in. Yeah, so currently I run a YouTube channel that is really trying to inspire or motivate the millennials or the next generation after them to at least just buy their first home or become property investors. And I think the ultimate goal there is just to help them make better financial decisions um, and help them set themselves up for the rest of their lives. Uh, but professionally, I've been working as a data scientist for most of my career, I think, uh, and I've been a data analyst before that. Wow. Okay. So you're obviously a clever bloke and we like clever people, especially data clever people because it's very <laughs> important with due diligence. So I'm looking forward to, to, to going deep into that. But yeah. give us some background on you growing up. What were the bedroom wall posters? Yeah, so I think for me, um, I've had a computer since I was about five years old. So it wasn't more the posters on the wall. It was more the uh, the desktop screensaver. Um, but I think, you know, growing up, I was a massive rugby union fan and I actually played it since I was about seven years old until I graduated high school. So I think back then it probably would have been like the, the Wallabies rugby league team when they're actually good and beating the All Blacks. <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> thanks for um yeah and and you've you've proven one of my hypotheses is that uh union is the cleverest code you you've, you've <laughs> given me more material there um i don't know what it is about rugby union but it attracts clever people whereas league <laughs> not so much um and uh thanks for for showing my age on that question too nobody does <laughs> posters anymore it's the screensaver so thanks for that um none taken uh, what about property investment how did you get started in property and what was your first investment yeah i think this is great because um my journey is part of the message that i want to try and get out there so we bought our first property when i was 23 which is four years ago now and um we actually settled the week before we got married and i kind of always knew that i wanted to get onto the property ladder and be a property investor but i think we just bought that one for the essential need to have a roof over our heads. And the reason that I say as part of my message is because we actually bought a brand new two bedroom unit. So, um, you know, like any first home buyer, we kind of got swayed by the shiny objects and, you know, the brand new appliances. And we didn't really know a whole lot about property investing or what made a good asset. Um, you know, how these material things are the things that would depreciate the most over time and how there may be some developer's margin in buying a new property. So, um, but we did get pretty lucky with the suburb that we bought in, like over the last four years has been a, a huge gentrification change. Uh, there's been a ton of new cafes that have popped up and gyms and stuff like that. So we've actually done quite well off it. 
It's an interesting point. And I mean, that time frame has been good to you. So buying a, an apartment four years ago, you probably got, you know, that good, good uptick in the cycle. But it's certainly intoxicating for first homeowners to get into that new stock now. And a lot of people have, have probably sitting on something that, you know, often when it settles is worth less than what they paid. But you can understand yeah. that mindset of buying the, the shiny new stuff. Let's go back to your, I guess, your, the beginning of your professional work. You, you're a you're a data science analyst. You've got a data science background. What, what does that mean in real terms? Yeah, so I started my corporate job as like a data entry clerk. And I think that really frustrated me pretty quickly. Like after three months, I was like, there's got to be a better way of doing all this data entry. So I kind of got into scripting and coding and manipulating data in different ways. And I think the light bulb really switched on when I took a job that used to take me eight hours and turned it into a click of a button. And I think when I saw that sort of efficiency and productivity within the business, and then my managers saw that too, and they were asking me, oh, well, how can you turn my eight hour job into a click of a button? That sort of really sparked, you know, what, what can be achieved with data. And I think the next step on from that was kind of like visualizing uh, the trends and finding more efficiency, seeing where we were spending too much money, seeing where we need to spend more money. And then from those historical trends, I moved into the predicting trends. So what what is going to happen in the future? And if something bad was going to happen, how can we prevent it from happening? And that's when I really grasped data science and how algorithms work in the in the background. And it's kind of been a really good tool in my toolbox ever since then. Yeah, I can imagine, especially when you're, you're looking at investment stock to purchase. And thankfully, you had some clever managers that saw your potential because as soon as you said, I've clicked a button and I've done eight hours worth of work, I'm thinking, gosh, this poor guy's made himself redundant. Maybe all his mates. But <laughs> they were able to leverage that and, and, and harness efficiency. So that's a good thing. Yeah, I tried to go home after clicking a button, but they wouldn't let me. <laughs> well, and they should, you know. Um I hope none of my staff are listening and we certainly need some more efficiency. Um, Big data and and prop tech, that's a pretty important uh, word in real estate at the moment. There's a new prop tech podcast coming out. Uh, We know big data is a a really important thing that companies are tapping into to revolutionize how we buy products and services and, and how, I guess, probably even more important, how we market to people who are potential customers. What do you see happening in the real estate space when it comes to to data and property technology yeah i think the space is pretty ripe for the picking right now like there's there's so much room for change that can come through um over the last five years i think there's been a big emphasis on sort of property management so um managing your own property online doing short-term rental stays you know having guaranteed rental for 52 weeks of the year but it comes at a cost of a higher rate um, yes, yeah, so there's been a lot of uh, work done in that sort of space. Uh, there's other companies like Bricks, BrickX where, you know, you buy a brick of a house and they don't like you calling it a share, but it's basically a share where they've got like 10,000 bricks, which make up a whole house. And um, you, you buy, you can buy 10 bricks of that house if you want to, but then you share the rental income and the profits with everyone else who also owns a brick in that house. Mm. And I think that sort of technology has lowered the barrier to enter the property market, but um, also we're not leveraging as much there. So if you were to invest $10,000 into uh, one property, you'd only get $10,000 worth of bricks. Where is if you were to invest $10,000 in a deposit to borrow $100,000, you're not getting that sort of leverage. So I still think it's been great to sort of, um, you know, enableize that lower, lower price point to get into the, into the market. Um, I think more recently we've seen a lot of changes in the 3d space. So there's a lot of like 3d modeling coming out where, 
you know, okay, we've got our bathroom here. Let's drag and drop where we might want the bath to sit. And then we'll put the shower over here. And then where's the basin going to go and sort of planning out your, your house that way. It's been kind of interactive and cool. Um, there's a lot of 3d imaging coming out. So, um, for existing homes, so you can pretty much do like a walkthrough of an existing home with a 3d imagery. So, you know, it's kind of like just doing your own open home really out of your laptop where you've got, you know, all the dimensions and the measures on the side of the page and you can, okay, oh, my couch will fit in there. And you can sort of do that as well. Um, but I think more importantly, like this whole prop tech thing is bought on, a better understanding of the value of good quality and clean data um, and how it enables us to do so much more analysis and gives us good indicators and make better informed decisions. And I think we'll start to see that sort of come through in like the um, agency CRM systems where, you know, we can identify the quality of the lead coming through an open home, like how many people are coming through. Do they have their finance approved? You know, are there, have they gone to other open homes and what price bracket are those other homes at? So we can sort of gauge where their, um, their limit might be. And then on the flip side of that for the buyers, I think, you know, these real estate agent ranking websites where we can go online and rank the real estate agent, like how good were they? Were they, did they just want the sale and get this, get um, us to sign up with them? And then they just left us and they didn't, you know, back up what they said they were going to do. And um, I think that's going to really help us identify who the outliers of the really good top real estate agents are. Um, mm. And, you know, if we're selling a specific house, you know, we could find an agent that, you know, specializes in that specific house in that specific area. Um, but I think in saying that too, like the agency selling fees are ridiculous. Like they're so huge and there's so much money on the table up for grabs. And I think there's like such a, there's such a potential to disrupt that space. And I think like people have tried to do it with like online auction platforms and, you know, managing that negotiation process online. But I think there's a bit of room for improvement. And I think, you know, we'll start to see something come about there. I think you're right. And, and with all this stuff, it's a mixture of sort of terror and excitement for a lot of people and i think real estate shouldn't look to the sort of purple um, bricks as a case in point that it's not possible they certainly sort of left with their tail between their legs but it's uh it it is a case of innovate or or die and eventually someone's going to do something that i think is going to cause a massive shift what about um machine learning uh just give us a bit of a definition about how that works compared to say just just analyzing big data and and how you see that playing out in the next little while okay so i'll give you a little crash course in machine learning and there's three main algorithms that i want to go over um, that i think are going to have an impact in the space the first one is linear regression and we can use this to sort of predict the price of a property. So in its most, in its most basic form, um, it's basically just finding a relationship between two variables on like a, an X and a Y axis. So say uh, land was on the X axis and Y was on the Y and, and house was on the Y axis. It would then plot, you know, a property that we're trying to predict on that X and Y axis relative to all the other properties in the area. So um, you know, and then this multiplies out by how many different types of features there are. So along with uh, land size and house size, if we chucked in beds, number of beds, number of bathrooms, number of cars, this multiplies out significantly and it sort of plots it all on these different um, axes to give you the best predicted price. And um, I think, you know, this, this has been good so far. I don't think it's as advanced as it can possibly be. The biggest problem with machine learning is that it, it, it only learns what you, what you train it on. So, you know, if you're training it, training it with biased data, it's going to be biased. So, um, you know, all we really do is just feed these algorithms with a ton of historical data and presume that the 
same trends that happen historically will cause the same results in the future. So, um, a big if, yeah, though, exactly. So those those trends can be impacted so quickly. Like if you take zoning, for example, it's not something that we can really measure. Um, and 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 you know we can't we can't say that this suburb has gone through the same zoning as um, as it, as before. So we can't really measure what a zoning change is going to do. I mean, we can take other suburbs that may be similar, but it's not going to be the exact same impact. And although we have like really good data in Australia, there's, there's so much that goes into the price of a property. Like there's economic activity, human emotions, um, government policies, financial regulations, gentrification, like all these things that are really hard to measure collectively. And, um, I think most of these things can sort of be identified and are recorded in the census data. But again, that only happens every five years. So it's quite easy for that data to become unregulated. Um, but I think the biggest, the biggest problem with linear regression is predicting for the long term. So the current algorithms out there on the market at the moment only predict in the short term, like under 12 months. And the biggest, like with my goal with property investing is to at least hold an asset for 10 years because, you know, the, the trading cost to buy and sell property is just ridiculous. So, yeah. um, you know, it's not really useful for long-term indicators. And even one of the, the leading algorithms in the industry at the moment, um, just this weekend, predicted a house in Abbotsford, Victoria. Um, it was going to predicted it was going to sell for 1.2 million. Um, the place was actually advertised for 1.2 million to 1.4 million, and it sold for 1.7 million. So, um, you know, that's something that we would call an outlier, but that's a big outlier. Like that's that's greater than 40% out of what the property actually sold for. So, um, you know, obviously that's a that's a good example that. The algorithm's been trained on the recent market data and it hasn't accounted for all these, you know, recent changes that we've seen with APRA and the Liberal government and the cash rate dropping. Um, so it hasn't accounted for this sort of rebound. And that's the leading algorithm at the moment. And then I think the algorithm that the big banks are working on, um, you know, it, it it provides a range. It doesn't provide an exact price. And the range can be huge. Like a, a house could be advertised for $600,000 and the bank might give you a range from five fifty to six fifty. So there's no real accuracy there. There's nothing really to measure. And it's, it, yeah, it's, I just think that, you know, there's a lot of improvement in that space. Um, but onto something more uh, productive is something called clustering. So what clustering does is it divides the data you feed it into groups. So an example of this is, say we had data on a cat, a dog, and a lizard, and we had features on all these three things. So we had the number of legs, the number of eyes, the skin type, the posture, and the feet type. And then, you know, depending on what you ask the algorithm to do, you say, okay, I want, um, I'll give you all this data, but I only want two groups back. So it'll go down the list and it'll say, okay, well, um, they've all got two two eyes. They've all got four legs. They've got um, two of them have got a skin type of fur, and one of them's got a skin type of lizard. So that might be an, a sorry, a skin type of scales. So that might, <laughs> <Gotcha>. <laughs> that might be a, an indicator to um, separate them into two groups, and so it'll feed you back two groups, or you could say. Um, I want three groups back. So um, it'll go down and list again and then it'll get to posture and it'll say, okay, well, um, although cats and dogs both have fur, their postures are quite different and their feet type, you know, they've got paws and claws and they're a little bit different. So I might segregate them into its own group there and it'll, it'll give you back that data but in the three different groups. And I think this is going to be really good for, um, you know, finding similar suburbs that have good capital growth. 
So an example would be like we could take the the 10 best capital growth suburbs over the last five years and take a snapshot of how they were um, back in time five years ago. And then we can center those groups around these particular suburbs, right? So then we could take um, suburbs as they are today and compared to these good capital growth suburbs five years ago, and it should send back these, you know, group of suburbs that either are similar to those those 10 top capital growth suburbs or aren't similar to those 10 top capital growth suburbs. And I think this is a much better approach because, you know, we're asking a much similar, a much simpler question from the algorithm, which is, you know, what suburbs uh, will perform better than the average capital growth in the area rather than like asking what a specific price of a property is going to be. So I think it's, it's, it's more, it's much more generic, but um, it answers an easier question. It seems like you're teaching it less as well and it's out there hunting for its own correlations rather than you sort of saying these things are inextricably linked and I think that's always a weakness, right? You know, Microsoft will put their newest AI bot on Twitter and then within about five minutes it's racist and abusive yeah. because people people teach it ro- the wrong thing yeah, or naughty yeah, thing. Exactly right. that, that seems like it has a, a lot more value. Yeah, well, like it scrapes all the data off Twitter and finds all the negative feedback and then all of a sudden it's... Uh, shooting a tweet out from Trump talking about, uh, you know, Cambridge Analytica or something. It's just, it's just crazy. Um, <laughs> people are, people are always the problem. And, and as you say, in those outliers as well, I mean, you cannot predict that two sort of arch rivals head to an auction and they both really want the place. It's going to get out of hand. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, but I think the most, the, the biggest uh, machine learning algorithm is something that we call neural networks. And this is really like black boxy. Like I don't, I don't really understand what goes under the hood. And I'm pretty sure that like most data scientists don't understand it apart from the person who built it. But um, it basically does all of the above. So it can do anything you really want it to do. But the biggest thing that it does is um, I- image recognition. So this is what like self-driving cars do, right? They have all these images of the road and what a stop sign is and what a traffic light is. And then it, it constantly trains on these images to recognize when it's a good time to go on, it's a good time to stop. So um, the way this works, the, the reason that this works so well is that there's so much data to train on. Like, you know, every if you've got a camera in front of every car and it's just constantly driving, there's just so much input of data coming through. And obviously, the more data that you feed an algorithm, the more accurate it's going to become. So um, I think, you know, taking image recognition away from cars and putting it on something like listing photos where we might be able to identify things like, you know, the quality of the kitchen or the quality of the bathroom or does it have brand new floorboards or is there a fireplace in there or a pool? And instead of that just being in like their listing description where we have to go and hunt it, you know, we could actually filter listings based on this criteria. So yeah, train it in on something like 20% of or people are prepared to pay a 20% premium on houses that have, have shutters for some weird psychological reason. Yeah, right? yeah, there could be exactly things right. like that we can discover. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that um you know that and and given those different data points that we would have because of those images you know it also provides more data to put back into the algorithm and make you know other algorithms more accurate so i think there's a big big play in there and um just quickly like even like doing building and pest inspections from images like you know we could ask an algorithm to identify signs of termites or signs of structural defects and before we even send a building and pest inspector out there um you know there could be a a list of already known items that we might have to be cautious of wow yeah look i could talk to you about this all day Mm. but you've got more to give and i'm (laughs) i want to squeeze a little bit more out of you um now 
I guess there's a lot of technology that's capable in the future. At the moment, certainly, we've seen a few basic things come out and some quite sophisticated. But right now and right here, how does your data science background and your understanding of these concepts help you from a, an asset selection or a due diligence point of view? Yeah, I think um, uh, f- for me, the biggest takeaway that I've taken from machine learning is that um, you know, th- there's been such a big hype around data science over the last couple of years. It's gonna, it's gonna take over jobs. It's gonna be all the new rage, and you know, it's really sexy. But from a property investing point of view, like it's not overly sexy. Like sometimes the best advice is just really boring. So, um, you know, as I was saying before, like these trends change so much, and there's so much that goes into the price of a property. So, uh, if, what I've really learned is that we can't just rely on an algorithm to give us, you know, the perfect property on the market right now that's going to give us the best capital growth and the best rental yields over the next 10 years like it's just not something that we can do but in in saying that though i'm not i'm not um, putting down machine learning i think the biggest thing that it does help with is you know depending on the data that you do feed it it's not biased towards things that we would consider to be important right so we all know that being in a school catchment zone is really important and um you know as soon as the first time i learned that i used to presume that Oh well, obviously, the more schools within a certain radius, you know, the the better the the results are going to be. So, um, one of my machine learning algorithms, I had a feature for the number of schools within a fifteen kilometer radius, and I had another feature for um, distance to the closest school. And you know, the the number of schools within the fifteen kilometer radius, you know, had barely any impact compared to the distance to the closest school. And um, although that might seem pretty obvious because we all know that we need to be near school, like the, the counter argument to that is you would think train stations would be in the same category, right? Well, mm-hmm. um, you know, I know Luke Metcalf, who's another data scientist, said this on another podcast, but I've, sound, I've found the same result where, um, you know, we all think that being close to a train station is really important. So I've had a feature for distance to the closest train station and for anyone that's like a, a check in the box, like, yep, that's good near a train station. But then from there, we don't actually go into the census data and say that, you know, see what percentage of people actually work from home in that suburb or what percentage of people actually take the train in that suburb. So the algorithm will actually find a correlation between those things and it'll say, okay, well, only 7% of the population take the train in this suburb. So um, the distance to the train station really isn't that much, isn't that really relevant. But, um, you know, yeah, back, back to my uh, the best advice is boring advice sort of thing. Uh, I think wealth creation is for the long-term strategy and there's really no like get rich quick scheme. There's, no, there's nothing sexy about it. You just got to um, create wealth over compound interest over time. Nice. And I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's the common bit of advice here is that, yeah, there's all sorts of things on the periphery you can zoom, zoom in on. But the most important advice are the the very basic fundamentals, such as you such as you mentioned. Let's get on to millennials. I know that millennials are a bit of a mission for yourself in helping to empower and educate mm-hmm. them. Um, I, I came across a, a Deloitte study yesterday um, that was published in the Australian, and I was interested to know that millennials were born between 1983 and 1994. I didn't realise mm-hmm. that. I hadn't sort of looked that up. After that's Gen Z. I'm actually a year outside of being a millennial myself, so I feel like I've got a real spring in my step there. Um, but interestingly, millennials who are actually older than Gen Z, sort of from 95 onwards, they're, they're the least likely to have children, buy homes, undertake the traditional signs of adult, adulthood, adulthood success markers, the article okay. said. And this year they're more miserable than oh, ever. Right. 
Um, there's a palpable deterioration of optimism, in quotes, uh, and a wide variety of both macroeconomic and day-to-day anxieties weighing on their minds. Um, so more so than Gen Z, who were, who were born after 1995. Yeah. What's going on with... Um, What's going on with millennials and why have you sort of singled out millennials or, or is it just younger people that you want to help empower to, to get into the property market? Yeah, I think um, we've kind of all grown up with this sort of instant gratification, right? Like social media posts and, you know, if we don't get, if we post an image up online, if we don't get the number of likes that we get within the first hour, we're going to delete it because it's just not doing well enough. And, um, you know, things like online shopping and, you know, instant purchases and, you know, we've now got these credit cards where, you know, it's an instant transaction. But I remember when I was younger, you know, you'd, I'd open up my wallet and I'd pull out a $5 note and I'd pull out a $20 note and I'd pull out a $50 note. And as I'm pulling out the money, I used to always think to myself, do I really want to spend this money? You know, there's no physical attachment to money anymore. It's kind of just like a piece of plastic that we swipe and all it does is uh, remove a binary digit on a browser somewhere. So I just think that, you know, we we haven't really been taught anything else. We've kind of just always wanted to have things right now. Yeah, and I mean, money sort of seems, yeah, it's an ethereal concept these days, isn't it? When you when you tap and go, yeah. and as you say, it's a it's a it's a it's a binary digit. So so, what do you think uh, millennials are missing from an education standpoint? Is it is it that sort of palpable sense of tangible money? What, where, where are they going wrong? Yeah, I think um, in in, educa- in terms of education on property, I think the biggest problem is. Um, Things like barbecue conversations where, you know, your best mate's friend's dad just bought a house down the street and, you know, he thinks he's going to get some good, he thinks he's already made a ton of money. So, and he thinks you should buy one too because you're going to do just as well. And I think, um, you know, we get so caught up in like media hype and, you know, oh, the market's now rebounding. So if you don't get in now, you'll never be able to get into the property market. And it sort of creates this this FOMO feeling where if we don't get in now, we're going to miss out. And um I also think, and I love my parents to bits, but I think, um, you know, parents also push push our generation to get into the property market and put some sort of pressure on there. But the difference is, you know, um, their property market was completely different to ours that we've got today. So they may be pushing them in, into the wrong types of properties rather than something that may be more affordable and um, have better growth long term. Well, if they stick with you and your YouTube channel, I'm sure they'll be pointing you in the right direction. And all they've got to do is go to your barbecues and you'll be helping them. And what I like about you at the moment, this might not be uh, perpetually true, but you actually have nothing to sell, right? So so your advice is is unadulterated and unfiltered, but I'm pretty sure it will stay that way anyway. Tell us about your journey though. What made you want to get into property and, and can you let us know how you sort of kicked things off, what you've done and where you're up to today and what the plans are? Yeah, so um, my dad's been a real estate agent since I was about 10 years old. And before that, he actually started Fantastic Furniture in a little, uh, in Parkley Market, selling it at the stalls there. And the wow. reason I say that is because, um, you know, he's always been so energetic and passionate and entrepreneurial with everything that he does. And I think he really took that into his real estate career. And I think that's really been distilled in me since I was since I was young, right? And then on the other side, my mum was actually on um, the Channel Nine show, Changing Rooms, like a couple of years ago, as an interior designer. So I think wow. my whole life I've kind of just been surrounded by like wealth creation and property and renovation and um, how how you can create wealth from it. Um, but I think the biggest thing that did kick it off is I remember looking at my dad's bookshelf one day, and there was a book called um, Zero to One Hundred Thirty 
Properties in Three and a Half Years by Steve McKnight. And like, I promise you, I've read that book like five times cover to cover. Like I just love it. And um, I think that's really what inspired me the most. Um, but yeah, from there, uh, since I've been a young kid, I've, I worked in a butcher. So I started working in a butcher when I was about 14 and then I absolutely hated that. I hated the smell of the butcher. I don't know what it was. So I had to figure out a, um, uh, how I could do something I loved. And at the time I was like, I still am really into fish keeping. Like I love fish. So that was my big hobby. And so I got a job at an aquarium selling fish and, uh, I stayed there for about four years, I think. And that worked me all the way through high school and then into my two years of uni. So, um, yeah, I went to uni and then I was doing uni full time and then working at the aquarium four days. And then after my first year of uni, I got into the corporate ladder. And um, so I was working full time. I was doing full time uni at night and then I was working both weekends at the aquarium. So it was pretty full on. And I didn't mm. save like every single penny. I actually quite enjoyed uh, my early 20s, but I was fortunate enough to save about a $40,000 deposit. Um, and with that, we were able to buy a property for $415,000 back in 2016. Um, and then, as I said before, that went through a massive gentrification period. And at the start of this year, we got it, which is 2019, we got it revalued for $580,000. So it's nearly, uh, yeah, I think it's just shy of a 40% increase in three years. So we were fortunate enough to pull out um, 100000 of equity in that one and just sit in an offset account at the start of the year. And we kind of just waited for that market to stabilize. Um, and then we bought, uh, we, funnily enough, we bought after like the week after the federal election. So as soon as the liberals got, got in, I was like, okay, time to buy again. Um, and luckily the market's turned up since then. So, uh, yeah, we bought our second one for $480,000 and that was a bit of a reno. So we spent $10,000 on renovations and we just had it revalued at 550. So, uh, I think we're in a good space to potentially go again. And given the current lending environment, I think like the RBA just released a speech on Tuesday, um, where they said the board is still prepared to ease monetary policy if they're further needed. So, um, yeah, hopefully if the cash rate still comes down and the interest rates come down with it, we might be able to go again. Yeah, you might be, you might be close, but, um, yeah, it sounds like you got about 60 K with my rough maths on that one yeah. as well. So in a short time you've done, you've done really, really well. Um, I wanted to ask you about being an Airbnb super host as well. I don't exactly know what that means. <laughs> I'm assuming that you've, you've utilized these, um, properties as, as short-term leases. Yeah, correct. Right? And is that something that is going to be part of your investment strategy or is it just a bit of a coincidence of the type of properties that you've bought so far being sort of suitable yeah, for? Yeah, I think um, and I really like I really like answering this question because I think, you know, we've only been doing Airbnb for about six months or so, but I think I've spoken way too highly of it. Like it has been really good for us, but I think I've accidentally inspired too many people to try it out. <laughs> You've started yeah, a cottage quick Exactly. And, um, and I think you're like, for me, it, it is just a piece of the puzzle. Um, you know, right now we do have the flexibility to property manage and clean, clean houses and all the rest of it. You know, we've really got, we've got our own house plus two other houses that we have to clean. You know, some people 
find it hard to just clean one house on the weekend. We have to clean three sometimes. And, you know, luckily my, my wife, she's an absolute cleaning angel. Like she just, she really enjoys cleaning. So that's a really good sign. Um, like she'll spend two hours, like we have a cleaner that comes and cleans out our properties, but she'll spend two hours before a cleaner comes in. And then she'll spend like four hours after the cleaner comes in just to make sure everything's absolutely perfect. And I think that's really what gets us that sort of super host status because yeah, the super host just means there's, there's kind of like different tiers of hosts based on your ratings. And I think that's, uh, she's really helped us out with that. But yeah, we don't like we don't have kids at the moment, so we do have time for it, and it's it's kind of like just a second job. It's a it's a good paying second job, but it is really a second job. And I think you know it's it's not for everyone. Specifically, if you've got you know a house that's not in like a, a working or tourist destination, um, you don't just presume you can set up an Airbnb and you're going to do well in those in in spots that aren't don't have those sort of working hubs. Um, and then also I'm a little bit unsure about future regulations. So, um, I, it's pretty relaxed in Victoria, unless you're having, if, unless you've got guests that are having parties every, uh, every night you, you can get sprung out, but I think it's pretty relaxed and I think it will tighten up in the future, specifically like in suburbia and around like friendly communities and in strata buildings. So I'm just a little bit cautious of what's going to happen there, but I think right now it's been a great tool to increase our cash flow. Um, luckily we kind of, we've been near like the airport and working hubs. So, um, we've had some really good long-term stays. People will come and stay for like six weeks because they're working in Melbourne for that long. And that's, that's been really helpful. And, you know, obviously we don't have to clean as much if they stay that long. So that's really helped out quite a bit, but also um, like any business, the banks don't take those funds in consideration straight away. Like you actually do need two good financial year tax returns for them to even consider it a viable source of income. So, and I think people really get caught up in this is they think they can positively gear gear through short-term rental stays and they think the banks are just going to increase their borrowing capacity instantly. So um, I just want people to be very aware that, you know, it, it, it's not a, a savior. It's not the it's not the best result that you can get. And I think for us, um, our approach is still capital growth. Like that's still my main objective. And the income from Airbnb, although it does help out, you know, it's it's nothing in comparison to pulling out some tax free equity in a building. Yeah, I think that's great advice. It's worked for you, but there's a lot of moving parts, and you should definitely do your own research. So, yeah, I think if you've been over in, overly enthusiastic in in other bits of media, <laughs> then we we've brought everyone back down yeah, to earth yeah. on this one. Um, tell us about your YouTube um, channel. Obviously, yeah. that's uh, that's geared to so your your mission, I suppose, of of helping to empower millennials. If 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 we've got someone with a short attention hmm. span, are there one or two videos that you would pick that? They I would go yeah, on there's this one video that I made recently called um, Stop, Don't Buy That Property, Do Your Due Diligence. And I think I, I love that video so much because the first thing I say is buying an investment property or a property in general is the biggest financial decision of your life. Like if you get it wrong, it could not only cost you in the short term, but it's going to cost you in opportunity costs for the rest of your life. And you'll always be kicking yourself about it. So um, and the reason I love that so much is like I've always been sold on the idea that you can't lose in property. But um, in, in Q1 of 2019, this year, you know, 12% of all properties sold at a loss. And, you know, according mm. to CoreLogic's Pain and Gain Report, which is great if you haven't seen it, but it basically shows you all the properties that actually sold at a loss. Um, but yeah, that, that video doesn't cover every single little due diligence that you should do, but it does cover most of the big ticket items that you should look out for before doing it. And I'm, I really hope like people just see that video and then actually stop and reconsider what they're about to buy. 
I think that's good advice. And an important thing to note, I think, as well, is that there is a really strong inbuilt loss aversion mm. thing that we have psychologically. So for people to to actually have, have crystallized that loss, that, that tells a bit of a story as, as well because people would try and hold on if yeah. they could. If they haven't been able to, then it's either gone really far south or they haven't done enough research to know what the sort of cash flow requirements are of it day to day so i think in some ways that's a that's a that's an even more telling statistic talk to us about an a-grade investment property for you so we talked about some key components like proximity proximity Mm -hmm. to schools and train stations and that sort of thing but what are you looking for when you're on the hunt for an investment yeah i think the the biggest drivers like any economy is really um supply and demand so the biggest things i look out for is an increase in demand and a shrinking supply and that together with livability feeds into future growth so um, when i'm looking for an increased demand it'll be through population growth um, the time on market. So if the time on market starts to come down for listings, that means that properties are getting bought quicker. Um, government spending. So is there going to be infrastructure built in the future? Uh, vendor discounting. So is there a reduction in vendor discounting? Are they not? Uh, are they happy to sell at the normal price? And then when I'm looking for shrinking supply, it'll be uh, stock on market. So you know. It, are people holding their their good quality asset stocks for a longer period of time? And are they holding on to them, not selling them? Um, I'll be looking at the dwelling types, so how many total in the area there are compared to how many are on the market currently. Um, what the and then for future growth, I'll be looking for income. So you know, double income families that um, are, are both have got high income generally uh, increase the value of that area because. They're, they're generally younger and they've got future growth in their career. And once they're sort of locked into an area, they kind of don't want to move away from it. So um, that sort of increases the, the, the price of the property in that area. Um, yeah, at population age, as I just said, so, you know, look between 25 to 30 where they've got their, their full working career ahead of them. Um, historical growth. So you want at least, you know, eight to 10% per year of growth of capital growth over the last 10 years. But uh, on the contrary to that, I also look out for, um, you know, less than 30% growth over the last three years, because if, if you've had more, if you've had like a 40 or 50% growth in the last three years, it's actually overpriced. And um, it's probably due for a bit of a price stabilization. So you, you might just flatten out for a little bit there. It might not be the best time to buy in. It might be just a little bit overpriced. So I'd be a little bit cautious of that. Um, zoning changes. Has there been any zoning changes recently? Make sure that it's not uh, industry reliant. So it's not in a, a mining town or a working area. Um, the big difference between value and price. And if you don't know the difference, value is what you actually get, where price is what you pay for it. Um, land versus house ratio. So uh, for a house, I'll look for 60 to 7% of the land component. And for a unit, I'll look for 30 to 35% of the house component. Oh, sorry, of the land component for a unit. Um, and then looking for good comparable sales. So same dwelling type, same number of bedrooms, same sort of meter squared. You want to have a, you know, at least 10 good comparable sales to sort of uh, validate that the price of the property is accurate. And then for livability, I'd look for um, a higher ratio of owner-occupiers compared to investors because owner-occupiers generally look after their house a little bit better. They'll mow the grass and, you know, it's their little baby, so they'll, they'll look after it. And then 
um, having less investors in the area too. Like if market conditions were to force you to sell your property, if, if the cash rate went up significantly and interest rate went through the roof, you know, that would impact everyone else in the area that's an investor as well. So the more investors that you had in the area and, and if they all had to sell at the, at the same time, that would increase the supply on the market and you'd have to take a lesser price for your stock. Um, uh, I also look for good friendly neighbours because we're good Australians and we love our friendly neighbours. Um, uh, <laughs> I'll look for the street. Uh, so a good quiet street, not on a main road, uh, very accessible and even has views if you can get them. And then also for livability, it would be like close to amenities such as parks and riding tracks or cafes, restaurants, stores. And then, yeah, as we said before, public transport, close to schools and then uh, close to the CBD as well. Well, that was an exhaustive list, but I can't, <laughs> I can't say I disagree with, with any of it, but it's pretty impressive to see the, the methodology that you've got. Obviously, you're not umming and ahhing through this stuff. These are key things that you've got in your head. Yeah. Um, and, and even though you've got this, uh, this, this pretty gifted data brain, essentially, you just said supply and demand. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but but of course gave us some insights into into things that influence that and, and some other bits on the periphery as well. So uh, I would absolutely recommend rewinding that <laughs> and having another listen to people. Um, so yeah, that's an exhaustive list. Thanks for for sharing that. I appreciate yeah, I, that. I can go again if you want me to. That if yeah. you could do that again verbatim in the exact same order, then drinks are on me. Um, <laughs> Now, talk to us about you personally. What what's what's the end game for you? And 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 maybe this is not something that you've thought out in in, in detail. Although from your previous answer, I doubt it. <laughs> um, is is there a, a retirement age? Is there a traveling the world? Is there a Bugatti Chiron? What are we talking? Yeah, I think my my end goals really changed over the last couple of years. I think I you know when I was younger, I was one of those. 10 properties in 10 years kind of guy, you know, that defines being a successful investor and I'm going to be financially free. But now that I've actually, you know, run the numbers and feasibilities and what I need to um, be financially free, I just, I think I ultimately just want three or four really great assets that accumulate, you know, good compound growth for the rest of my life. So, um, I definitely want to um, acquire them pretty quickly and then let them just roll. But, um, you know, I've been fortunate enough in my life to both be extremely wealthy and struggle to put food on the table. So I can tell you firsthand that wealth doesn't bring happiness. Like the, the thirst for, for finance or wealth is never quenched. Like there's always something else you can spend more money on. And we were actually our most happiest when we couldn't put food on the table because, you know, we were more of a united family then. And I think... Now that my uh, end game has changed, you know, family is really what is the most important for me. And ultimately, I just want to be able to provide financial freedom for my family and hopefully the next generation after that as well. I love it, and this is going to feel a little bit like I'm I'm clubbing a, a panda cub. But for, for anyone that's a bit critical of you, of yourself, sort of saying, "Look, millennials need a bit of help." Um, with your, I guess the 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 having the father who's the fantastic furniture baron. Mm. Um, what do you say to people that sort of say, "Well, you know, you've you've never really grafted. Like everything's going to have been handed to you." It's it's a bit of a tradition for me to give a bit of stick to the guesser. <laughs> this is this is your turn. 
Yeah, to that I would say, um, you know, life life is what you make it, and and I, I honestly I haven't been given I haven't been given a, a, a goal. I wasn't born with a spoon in my in my mouth. Like um, we've been through these ups and downs, and I think you know my my dad's Dutch, and he's probably the toughest man that you've ever met, and I'm <laughs> so thankful for that because um, he never gave me anything. Like when we went out for dinner. I would always have to split the bill with him. Like it was just, there was nothing, you know, there was nothing given to me, but that distilled so many lessons into my life. And I know I hated it at the time because, you know, at the time we were wealthy and I was like, well, why don't you just pay for it? But I think I learned so many lessons from that. And um, I, I, and life is really what you make it. You know what I mean? Like I, I took so much out of that. Uh, yeah, I can imagine you hated him at the time, but um, <laughs> you know, working in an aquarium and working as a as a butcher, those aren't you know those aren't jobs for the one percenters. I, I don't think Prince William did his stint in the local uh, chop shop. Yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> so, what about um, from an education point of view? Obviously, you're passionate about the YouTube channel and sharing your your wisdom. Um, are you looking at, at starting a business down the track? Yeah, I think we touched on this before, but um, I think having free content is so much more well-received than just shoving a product or a service in someone's face. So uh, at the moment, I'm still trying to really grow that sort of following base. I think out of that, if um, I could get the YouTube monetization feature, which you know just puts ads on top of my video, so you'd have to watch an ad to watch my video, but at least I get paid for it. That would be uh, fantastic. Uh, I'm still on the corporate ladder, so... Um, you know, the YouTube videos really started out as a, a, me making a joke video for my friends and about property. And I didn't realize how much satisfaction I'd actually get out of helping them. So, um, for me right now, it's kind of just a, a bit of fun and a bit of, um, trying to pass on the knowledge. I might do an ebook or something like that down the track, depending on how things go. But, um, yeah, still on the corporate ladder. I love what the guys over at Pippa and Pika are doing. If you haven't heard of them, they're the property mm-hmm. investors association. Um, but they're trying to really put some regulation around the property investment advisor industry. And, um, yeah, not for anything, but just for support and more knowledge, I'd probably like to do the picker course. So become a qualified property investor advisor um, and probably just see what comes out of that. Awesome. And uh, I don't mind sort of running through a few ads to to get to your content on YouTube. <laughs> Hopefully they're machine learning targeted at me. I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm sick of watching supercar videos on YouTube and getting Mazda 3 commercials. There's a mismatch there. It's, I'm not going to buy yeah, Mazda no, 3. Not if I'm looking at a Ferrari or something. And these yeah, are just exactly. aspirational things. Maybe they just know that, come on, come on, Mike, you'll pay a grade. We know what it's going to be. <laughs> um, but um, how do people get in contact with yourself, Jordan, if they want to have a chat? or and, and how do they, where do we find your YouTube channel? Etc. Yeah, uh, the best place is probably jordandeyong.com. Um, that's if you sign up there, you'll get my like I'll send you an email directly, an automated email, but that's my actual email, so you can reply back to that, and I'll we can get chatting from there. Um, on social media, I'm just mostly proactive on LinkedIn. I don't really delve with the other social medias, um, so you can connect with me there, and we can have a chat. And then obviously, yeah, the YouTube channel. Um, it's just called Jordan DeYoung, nothing special, but if you type that in, you should, should, my, my mug should pop up somewhere and, uh, yeah, just a cheeky plug. If, even if you're not a millennial, but you like, uh, what my mission is and what I'm trying to do, just subscribe there because it does really help with the YouTube algorithm and getting the word out. 
Beautiful, not too cheeky. Now you've got, <laughs> I'm going to let you plug even harder. You have started or you're about to start your own podcast? Yeah, I'm uh, doing my first interview next week. So uh, wish me luck. Yeah, no, well, um, if it's anything like mine, then it's probably going to fail and catch fire. So <laughs> to look to some of the other experts, but I'm sure you'll make that a success. Hey, what are you um, saying? I'm on your podcast. Well, <laughs> you're, perhaps you're bringing the average up. I don't think it's the guests that's the problem. It's just listening to me prattle on. Um, thankfully, I don't talk too much about yeah. tax legislation, which um, makes people really drift off. Um, to, we, to, to, to sort of wrap us up, Jordan, if there's one piece of uh, advice that you can give to would-be property investors or current property investors, what would it be? I think, yeah, not just specifically for millennials, but for everyone, like understand what delayed gratification is. Um, don't get caught up in this quick, get rich quick schemes and, um, you know, being an instant wealthy person, like they generally result in specifically in property, they result in um, property spruikers or hotspotting. And these are just topics that you kind of want to avoid. You know, wealth creation doesn't happen overnight. Um, I don't know what the exact statistics is, but uh, I know that lottery winners are more likely to go broke than just the, the average workers. So that's sort of proves that you know if you if you get wealthy all of a sudden you, you don't have that you don't understand that process of generating wealth and keeping wealth um buying a property you have a hell of a three weeks though, right? <laughs> yeah that's right well we can go to vegas <laughs> um but yeah buying a property is the biggest financial decision of your life so really just take your time you know if, if you get it wrong you could set yourself back an opportunity costs for the rest of your life don't get it wrong i love it <laughs> Thanks for joining me, Jordan. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Cheers. All the best.